Well, good morning, Troy. It's so good to be here on the Lord's Day again. We're, we're going to do this outside and, and pray that we have gorgeous weather like this for one more Sunday. Uh, then after that, I mean, this week is the end of summer. It's, uh, it's hard to believe. It went fast. But we'll be back in Revolution Hall. We won't be going away. We'll just be moving spots. So I just want to encourage you, uh, let people know that. And if you've been coming here just because it's outdoors and you've stumbled onto us, we're really glad to welcome you. And we hope that you'll continue as we're just down another block at Rev Hall. So when I was growing up, I had a dad who didn't do the let's sit down and have a very direct talk about things. He, he tended to make observations and, and give a lot of little proverbs and adages if you had done something right or wrong. For example, if, if I had some success and I was maybe boasting a little bit about it and my father would say, you know, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. And I would realize, oh, okay, I, I need to just settle down a little bit. Or, or if something there was that I was complaining about and just saying, you know, I tried really hard. I did this, and, and these guys did better, especially in sports. He'd say, well, it's amazing how lucky the hardworking will get. New mic. And the, the one that I probably heard the most is when I swore I was right, and everybody else had it wrong. He'd say, yeah, the band's all out of step, not just the one guy. And I would, I would remember these kind of little adages for a lifetime, and, and that's just what they were for. They were a statement about something else that, if seen rightly, had actually a lot to do with my life going alongside those stories. It was a simple way of telling someone some idea, some wisdom, some teaching, without having to engage every detail of the real. So this morning, as we turn back to the Gospel of Matthew and you find your way to, to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be looking at Jesus telling a parable, telling this, this story of the kingdom I, I don't know if it's just me. Am I just magnetic again? All right. Rob, if you have a third microphone, you're welcome to bring me a third microphone. So here's where we're going to go today. First, we're going to talk a little bit generally about parables, how Jesus uses them, and especially about the parables of the kingdom, and spend a little bit of time understanding what not just parables are, but what Jesus means when he said the kingdom, because it's not understood in the context of the day, and oftentimes today, people don't always get that. Then we'll walk through the actual parable of the weeds that he's going to talk about, and then finally we'll, we'll focus on some takeaways from that. Um, as we head into the Word, I just, I just want you to get the scene for a minute. Jesus is speaking to a really mixed audience publicly. He's talking to people who are curious about what he's doing. They're just trying to listen and understand. Something is happening. There's a buzz about it. There are people here. This man seems to have a power and a magnetism that's drawing people. What's going on? There are the committed, his disciples, who've said, we're going to reorient our lives, deprioritize things that we thought were once incredibly important, like fighting against Rome, making our careers a priority, to follow after you. And there are those who are contrary to him. Those who are listening just so they can say, aha, that's why we don't believe you, and to, and to try to trip them up. He's speaking to all these different groups, and, and he's saying things to engage the minds of people who are really listening. So he's dealing with a lot of different people, a lot of different layers. How can he talk about things that are maybe the deepest pieces of life we'll ever experience? What God is doing in this world and how we can be a part of it. He, he talks about farming. He, he talks about the ground and a man sowing seed. Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven 
may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, as we hear the words of Jesus spoken on this world to people like us 2,000 years ago, the echoes still move us. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, thoughts that run along the simplicity of this story to the deepest things that you have for us. Help us, Lord, to see King Jesus and to be drawn to be greater subjects in his kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So parables. The, the, the Greek term parabolase means not just a, a comparative story, not just a, a story alongside a story to show you something deeper about the one that it's illustrating. They're used in all sorts of ways, from full-blown allegories, very detailed stories that everything represents something, to, to riddles, to, to almost proverbs. As a matter of fact, the, the word parabolase gets translated proverbs at some points in the Bible. When Jesus has defeated Satan's temptation in the wilderness after being baptized by John the Baptist, he goes back to Nazareth. You may remember the scene. And, and he opens up for them in the synagogue the scroll and reads from them the reading that day. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he looks to the crowd and says, that's been fulfilled today in your hearing. There's muttering, murmuring, silent looks that say a lot likely, eyebrows. And, and, and people begin to say, don't we know him? He's a hometown guy. We're going to have someone we know who grew up with our kids tell us about God. And, and Jesus knows what they're saying and says, I know you'd say to me likely now the proverb, physician, heal thyself. And the proverb that he talks about, that word is translated, is from the Greek word parables. It can be riddles, like when he gives the Pharisees all these difficult scenarios to prove that they're really idiots who are trying to pretend they're great theologians. He, he catches them in those parables. He, he gives it as instructions to his disciples. We've seen it already in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about what salt is and how it's useful. That, that's a parable. The, the pigs and the pearls, how we have to be careful with people who are just violently opposed to the good news of the kingdom. He, he gives parables when he talks about how we should shape our lives that we shouldn't really count on things that are temporary, like building a house on sand. If it's just about our pleasures and our materials and even ourselves, it's just going to shift and go. That we need to build a life built on rock, which is him. They can be as realistic and developed stories as the Good Samaritan or, or the Prodigal Son. But regardless of form or audience, they reach into the world of our mind. Through that story, through that illustration, our, our minds, if we receive it right, get captured and we start to have our own thoughts. 
See, it's one thing to tell somebody to do something. They're going to forget. It's another thing to, to get them to see that they should be doing this thing. You see it all the time with parents, whether where it's a dad trying to teach a kid how to build something and eventually gets frustrated and said, here, just do it like this, and he does it himself, or, or the mom in the kitchen who's trying to teach the, the young person the bakes, ah, I'll just do it, you just watch. That, that person who was watching probably didn't learn much of anything. But if they actually got to own it, touch it with their hands, they, they could own it as theirs. And that's the purpose of a parable, to bring us into the richness of what God wants to say to us with words and stories that engage us right where we are. And Jesus is focusing now on parables about the kingdom of God. He's trying to tell us about something overarching that, that's with us any moment that we're part of that kingdom that, that we miss and ignore in most of the hours, days, months, years of our life. So what's he talking about? This, this kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, kingdom of light, some of the terms the Bible uses for it, all the same thing. If I was going to give you a definition, it would be this. Where God is in a place of rule over his people, there's the kingdom of God. When men, women, and children recognize the sovereign is over me, regardless of what I'm doing, where I'm going, I'm part of that and have to respond to him, there's the kingdom. John the Baptist, when he was preaching and gathering people at his revival of repentance of the Jordan River, said, you should repent, you should turn a different way, you should pivot and face toward God, because the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus began preaching, he would preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Israel had been waiting for this. In their worship book in the Psalms, it will say this in Psalm 145, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. And the glorious splendor of your kingdom, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. A place of permanence in a temporary world. A, a, a place that's present and tangible in aspects now, but is still being revealed and will fully come. A place of future appearance, all built into this one thing called the kingdom. And now Jesus is telling them about it. It was the bedrock of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, is where he's come out of the wilderness. And it says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Gospel is that word that means good news. See, Jesus wasn't just saying, you're a sinner, turn from your sin, and, and you can accept me as your savior and be forgiven. That, that's a fair slice of the gospel. Jesus was talking about this overarching truth of the good news, the good news of the kingdom. Salvation and healing and liberation are simply demonstrations of transformed lives of the kingdom. But the gospel, the good news, was always about this whole greater thing. And for Jesus, when he talked about it, he healed diseases and afflictions because with God, his words are always met with his work. His promises are always perfect. His prophecies are the same as his plans. And the king brought healing. To understand that the kingdom has work and that the king is among them. The kingdom was often misunderstood for a lot of people of Jesus' day. They thought the kingdom would be an earthly rule that would get rid of their their obvious glaring political difficulty that Rome was ruling over Israel. In other words, they looked out their window 
they looked at the daily newspaper and said, my biggest problem, our biggest social ills, violence, economy rule, that's what God's kingdom should fix right now. They, they never lifted their eyes any higher than their current events section. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand it, it's more than that. For some people, they dismissed it not looking at today's world, but only at the side to be revealed and said, the kingdom is just some pie-in-the-sky thing that has no real bearing now, and we'll worry about that some other day. But Jesus is teaching now, helping them to understand not just a vague concept of the kingdom, but what it really means, and so the parable. He, he began this parable saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. He's capturing their minds with a story, with something common. I mean, here we are in mid-September, summer about to end. For those who gardened, you know, your, your garden's getting ready to go to sleep. You maybe have some kale and some beans left over and some cabbage, but it's not, all the exciting crops are gone. It's kale and cabbage, enough said. The, the, the seed and the kingdom begin to say things to us that are just a normal part of our lives. This was an agrarian society. Men and women who would have worked the field, he's speaking to them. Can I pause there for a second and say, God's not trying to withhold things from us. He's not trying to be so deeply clever and hope that someday we'll be so illuminated, enlightened, and clever ourselves that we'll understand what he's saying. To the contrary, he's telling them stories that make perfect sense to them so that they can understand what he has for us. He's trying to bring them into the understanding of the kingdom through their gardens. Because if the incarnation, God made flesh, Jesus among us about anything, it's about God reaching to us as us. The, the, the headline of the incarnation is that God was pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, as the Christmas song sings. And I actually think that's why people have Jesus looking very different in their churches. That's why you can go to Asia and see a clearly Asiatic Jesus in churches. Why in sub-Saharan Africa, you can find a sub-Saharan African Jesus? Why in Western European churches, you can find a white Jesus? It's not because they didn't understand the history that he wasn't any of those groups, that he in fact was Near Eastern, would have been more what we would consider Arab-looking. It wasn't that they missed that. That wasn't the point. Their point, the point of those believers, was that they understood exactly what the incarnation was, that he was us. And they just chose Jesus to look like them because they got the theology. The headline wasn't Jesus appears as Galilean. The headline is God comes as man. And he speaks to them so they can understand not just the man, but the kingdom. The story has it all. It has the goal of the guy who's sowing it. It has the conflict, an enemy who sows a false seed there, and it has a resolution. But what does it mean? Well, it was Mark Twain who said, it's, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand. And this is one of those things where we don't have to just wonder what it means because Jesus himself offers explanation. But before we get right into the explanation, let, let's get to the place where the explanation comes out. In verse 36, take a look down there in 1336. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, um, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. It means a couple of things. It means people who are following Jesus actively might not understand everything. Even the best of the disciples, the ones close to them, have more that they can learn. 
Look, if you're a disciple of Jesus, maybe you've been through the Bible, maybe you've heard a lot of years of preaching, you think, I've got this down, it's all the same. Can I challenge you that something's off in your life and thinking because you're following after an eternal, infinite God who's perfect in holiness. That's a journey that continues. And the key to that is humility. They come and ask. They, they don't sit there and feel that sense of shame of, man, Jesus taught, and he said if you had ears to hear, you should hear it, and I don't get it. I'll just pretend and go along. I want to tell you about the smartest guy I ever met. And this guy knew so much about every topic. It, it seemed impossible. I felt like somewhere he, he must have had someone telling him answers. And I knew the guy. He'd read more books than anyone I ever knew, but still the breadth seemed so much and I can remember multiple times being in big conversations with him and other people, and someone who was an expert in something else would throw out some knowledge and say, well, do you know who blah, blah, blah is? And wait, when someone says that to me, I used to feel like some sense of, of welling defensiveness, like, oh, no, I'm going to look less if I say, I have no idea who this guy is that this person thinks is so foundational to all real knowledge. So maybe I'll just go, hmm, and hope he doesn't interpret that as a no, but a yes, and, and just move on. And I never learned a thing. This man I knew he would almost eagerly say, I don't know that. He was just hungry for more knowledge. And it was actually his humility in saying, I don't know, that I think was his secret to becoming the smartest guy out there. And I think these disciples are like that. A lot of people heard that parable. I'm sure a lot didn't understand it, but they come and say, Jesus, we don't get this. They, they have a humility that they can admit they don't know, and they have a confidence that God will receive them, that Christ will receive them and work with them. It needed clarity. We have that with the Bible all the time. Don't, don't, don't think that you get everything and don't give up because you don't get some things. St. Peter said, Scripture's hard, and sometimes I wrestle deeply with St. Paul's writings. Look, if those guys can struggle with it, you and I have free-range permission to say, I don't get some of this. It's just the truth. And there are some parts we will never get. When you can explain to me how a mortal virgin gives birth to an eternal God, I'd be happy to listen to that. When you can explain to me how the God in whom is life, who is the giver of all life, dies, I would love for you to explain that to me. See, there are things we might not always get, but we continue to move closer and closer to Jesus to understand these things. It's the humility of man and the graciousness, the teachability and the teacher merging together. And Jesus answers. He gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. Verse 37, he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field's the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then... The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. He tells of the kingdom, not in that slice, that moment of salvation, though that's a consequence of the kingdom. He tells the overarching narrative that, that God made this world intelligent in order, that an enemy sought to bring in evil and divisiveness to it. 
that they coexist now because of that. And that there will be a day where justice is done by the Lord. Not the reactions of human justice, which oftentimes is emotion, is anger, is injustice, but true justice. Not, not justice that needs any modifier, just capital J, justice at the end. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The kingdom of God is that whole story. So what it means to us? Well, it means this world was ordered by God. Just like the, the sower had created his garden, kept out the weeds, and, 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 and frankly, I don't know how that happened. I now think there must have been an enemy near my house because I had weeds in my garden and I only planted good seed. But this guy expected none because he had ordered it so differently. And he ordered it with a command for Adam and Eve and for humanity to this day to extend that order. He would say to them, subdue the world. Like the garden that I made in the Garden of Eden, keep, keep producing that. Produce that kind of organized beauty. Take this wild place. Bring from chaos, glory, and order. It's what God does. And for us, it means to this day, if we're good citizens of the kingdom, we can live to keep ourselves and spaces well. We can honor God by taking care of what's his, and that includes you. Another thing we can take away, the Lord has not lost sight of his order and plans in the midst of chaos. Look, the question of the weeds and wheat is on everyone's lips. Why is there evil in this world? How long will these terrible things last? Those are weed and wheat questions. I hear people blame God all the time as though he sowed the weeds. But God who's in charge, even in this time of chaos, says, I know what I'm doing. If I just go ripping things out and have the servants do that, I'll hurt the wheat. We're going to let everything grow for a time. Parallel tracks of good and evil, both growing stronger and larger until the end. Because after all the confusion, here's one thing we can bank on. Jesus says, there will be order brought to this. The, the angels will come and reap the harvest. See, there's a wrong answer. The wrong answer was, should we pull out the weeds right now and just go after? There are times we become so obsessed, and I want to be really careful with how I say this, with making an evil the only thing to be addressed. Should the church address evil? Absolutely. The church has addressed evil in its day for a long time. The, the great abolition movement against slavery the first universal cry for the end of slavery came from an Irish Christian, Patrick, who is a Scot, but he adopted Ireland. The abolition of slavery in the Atlantic slave trade came out of Christians in England and the United States. Hospices, where people said the suffering of the dying is unbearable, came out of Christians. Let's not pretend Christians didn't address evil and shouldn't address evil. They should. But if that becomes the biggie on your eye chart that we need to take care of that, you might just do damage to the wheat. You, you might just miss the greater things of the kingdom you're meant to do as well. There's a wrong answer in a right way, and there's a chance for us, a chance for all of us to be reaped in this divided harvest that's coming. Jesus said the angels will come and they'll gather together the weed and they'll gather together the wheat and they'll separate the two, one for shame and burning and one for glory. In other words, the fruit's going to tell when it's all done. It won't matter what you said. If you knew how to speak Christianese in the lobby and say, praise the Lord, brother, God bless you, it won't matter what you said. It's going to be your fruit. If you were hard-hearted and cynical, but boy, you'd really given yourself to Jesus and, and you quietly did things that were him in you and you couldn't help it, even if other people didn't know by your words, your fruit's going to be the thing that tells on you. And Jesus is going to say, you're mine 
or you're not mine. It'll be all wrapped up in the end, that fiery place where, where the Bible describes hell as often as fire and burning, unquenchable, and a lake of fire. Theologians get really bored on detail sometimes, and so we fight over things like, is it literal fire or metaphorical fire? So I never bought on this one, right? Didn't seem like it was worth biting. I just thought literal fire would be real hot and burn and terrible. Being just like literal fire, metaphorical fire would be really burning and hot and terrible like fire. It's bad. I think the answer is hell is bad, and we can stop arguing over that one. But the ones who will pull to him will be in glory, sons of the kingdom for sure. Comfort for the future. That even in this place where weeds and wheat seem to grow and blind us constantly, there's a hope for the future. A kingdom to come that's to be lived in now. Your growth is the goal. That wheat is meant to grow taller and produce more fruit, and God will nurture and prune you if you live in his kingdom. So what's it look like? It's going to look like being like Jesus. See, all religions have the, the one great figure that they point to, and the followers end up being like that person in some way. How do I mean that? Well, think about Judaism. You've got Moses, the great lawgiver. And Judaism will become a law, a religion of laws, as we see by the Pharisees. They go so far with it, they start to write hundreds of other sub-laws that are beyond what Moses had said in the law, but they become the law people and the adjudicators and the people who keep traditions of Moses. Islam was started by a, a, a guy who was a, a, a caravan raider, a, a, a pirate and a conqueror. And Islam is very concerned about conquering. There's scriptures talk about how you should conquer and how you subordinate Christians and, and what taxes they have to pay and how the, that's the whole purpose of what they're doing. Conquer, conquest. Jesus, the suffering servant he's called. One who left what we desire to have so greatly. Communion with God in a place of perfect eternal peace. He left to engage among this field of weeds, to, to find us as us, and to give himself on the cross. It's the fruit of his life and the course that we follow. We follow a servant who sacrificed, who left desire to enter despair, a king who would die for his people, but rise to inaugurate a new place of that kingdom. We're going to celebrate communion, and I want to encourage you to take some time to pray as we head into communion. Ask yourself, where am I with my king right now? And, and ask God, help me. Help me to see that. Give me grace. Give me that help. If you have the humility to say, help me with my sins, he'll likely give you the grace to start to deal with them and follow through on that. It may be to say, Lord, I don't know my directions anymore. I've been so confused with just baiting myself with my own desires, with envy of others, with things I can grab. I've lost direction of the kingdom. Lord, will you help me turn from that and seek after your son?